Good afternoon, this is Dr. Dan Guerra, and you're listening to Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is 15 June 2023. I hope you enjoyed that last lecture. I certainly did. We were discussing some of the physical and chemical dynamics of a uh, potential phospholipase enzyme tethered to a phosphatidylinositol lipid to an inner leaflet of a membrane. Now, that was a composite uh, theoretical consideration when one thinks about the potential for mobility of that enzyme in two-dimensional and indeed in three-dimensional space-time. And what I was getting at with that lecture was allowing you to examine what's going on in the cell from a different perspective. And that is a discussion of entropy, enthalpy, and free energy. Not because of the enzymatic activity or the turnover of membrane lipids, but simply the occurrence of an enzyme in an endomembranous system and how that may control its functionality and the energy involved in that functionality, particularly the free movement of the protein. So, about phospholipases and lipid kinases. Phosphatidylinositol can be phosphorylated to PI4P. And then, with another enzyme called PI5 kinase, synthesis of phosphatidylinositol 4,5-bisphosphate. One more kinase, putting a phosphate to 3 position, gives us PI345-trisphosphate. Now, at the level of the bisphosphate, phospholipase C will generate diacylglycerol and inositol 1,4,5-phosphate. Now, the diacylglycerol can be used for subsequent reactions such as those involving nucleotides. I want you to consider now phosphatidylcholine and phospholipase activity. Phosphatidylcholine in the membrane after phospholipase D activity will generate choline, that's trimethylethanolamine, and phosphatidic acid. Phosphatidic acid can be converted to diacylglycerol via the phosphohydrolase, important in the Kennedy pathway. That same phosphatidylcholine in the membrane can be reacted by phospholipase A2 and if that phosphatidylcholine is endowed with arachidonic acid in the two position, you're going to get arachidonate and lysophosphatidylcholine. The arachidonate can then be converted to prostaglandins and leukotrienes via the cyclooxygenases and lipoxygenases. So you get an idea of some of the flow of carbon. Now, I want you to think about dipalmitoyl phosphatidic acid. We're going to talk about phosphatic acid for a while. Now, that particular lipid in the membrane can exist in two different protonation states. And this has to do with the phosphate head group. So at low pH, the head group is singly deprotonated. But at high pH, the head group is fully deprotonated, generating the PO3 minus plays a major role 
in the activity of that phospholipid in associated with enzymes that are near that electron-dense phosphate center. The protonation state of any organic surfactant, actually, which would be a phospholipid like PA, will control the monolayer fluidity, which will then go on to control surface organization and overall you know, membrane for morphology. So that means that solution pKa values, which is talking about the protonation of phosphatic acid there, they can be used to determine various effect of surfactant-associated chemistries endowed in membrane lipids. So you need to know the pH and the pKa of that organic phospholipid. Now, I will tell you that the pH affecting the pKa of that phospholipid will be different when you're looking at surface phospholipid exposure versus bulk endomembranous phospholipid or indeed phospholipid metabolism happening in such places as the mitosol or in the inner uh, lumen of the endoplasmic reticulum. So those protonation states will differ. So by examining the different what are known as molecular area expansions at a basic pH, the pKa of the removal of the second proton, that again of DPPA, dipomethylphosphatic acid, and that would give you the surface pKa2 at, at an aqueous interface can be estimated. So a condensed DPPA monolayer will have a surface pKa2 of 11.5. That surface pKa2 can be altered by the presence of sodium ions in the aqueous subphase. By reducing the surface pKa2 from 11.5 to about 10.5. Okay. Now, you get further studies of this interaction of pKa values and solution chemistry um, were found by looking at the pKa2 value of DPPA as modulated by packing density. Why would that happen? Because you're altering surface charge density. So surface charge density actually becomes the driving factor behind changes in surface pKa2 values for dipomethylphosphatidic acid. And in fact, there is a diffuse double layer of ions. Here we're talking sodium, but they can also be potassium. And then counter ions and co-ions that are embedded within a dielectric medium, which follows a simple Poisson distribution across the membrane, okay? So when you think about phosphatidic acid, it can be converted to CTP diacylglycerol. CTP diacylglycerol is nucleotide lipids, which can be then used for phosphor membrane phospholipid synthesis. So CTP DAG can be used to form Phosphatidylserine. Phosphatidylserine can be converted to phosphatidylethanolamine. 
And then the vasoethanolamine, after trimethylation using acetylenocyanine, will make PC or phosphatidylcholine. That same phosphatidic acid can be converted to disoglycerol. And when that occurs, diacylglycerol can be converted to triacylglycerol. That's part of the canonical Kennedy triacylglycerol pathway. So there are a lot of possible interactions here. Here's another one. Phosphatidylcholine can be converted to PA directly by phospholipase D, which we mentioned a few moments ago. And as you know, DAG can be converted directly to PC and PE. Finally, CDP diacyclosol can be converted to all the phosphatidyl inositol phosphate lipids. Okay. All right. So get, getting the idea of all of this turnover of phospholipid, and what do you think is going to happen with electron uh, charge density? So go back to phosphatidic acid. Phosphatidic acid is involved directly in bonding to effector molecules. Those effector molecules could be proteins or they could be other lipids. And that will then recruit other membrane structures and proteinaceous uh, intermediates directly to the plasma membrane. So this is essentially a formation of membrane lipid raft at the plasma membrane. Now the binding is directly controlled by membrane availability. And of course, that's going to then be linked to concentration dependency of different phospholipids. So the modification of a membrane lipid species, for example, via an enzymatic activity, like phospholipase D or diacylglycerol kinase, both of which would make phosphatidic acid, right? Uh, in situ, that's going to be coupled to an upstream signaling process and membrane fluid dynamics. So phosphatidic acid membrane concentration is typically low in most mammalian plasma uh, lemma, less than about 1%. The reason that is is because phosphatidic acid is an intermediate for all those conversions I just went through. Plus, remember, the phosphatidic acid is a great substrate for turnover of that fatty acid in the two position. That would make lysophosphatic acid and then that free fatty acid, which typically gets reesterified only now to a thioester like coenzyme A. And then that coethioester of that fatty acid removed from phosphatidic acid in the membrane can then be converted to various eicosanoids. Okay? And then that could generate a single transduction cascade via receptor tyrosine kinases. So that's all occurring. At the same time, there is an alteration of electron-dense centers in the inner leaflet of the membrane on the cytosolic side, as well as similar alterations in the inner leaflet of the um, outer membrane. Okay, So cytosolic side, two sides of that inner leaflet, extracellular and then intramembranous on that outer leaflet. You're going to have interactions, dynamic interactions of phospholipid equilibrium. At the same time, you're having all these enzymatic reactions. And the enzymatic reactions are going to be directly associated with exposure of those lipids to the, to the enzymes, 
which would carry out those functions. And of course, any signaling that occurs because of ligand binding, such as to a GPCR, like we used in our example from yesterday, from the, the lecture a couple of days ago. So phospholipase degenerates phosphatidic acid for signaling. So that means then that phospholipase D is a potent regulator of multiple signaling pathways in mammalian cells. For example, RAS-RAF signaling. Now, RAS-RAF signaling is well-known and implicated in certain cancers because RAS-RAF signaling after phospholipase D activity will be associated with cell proliferation and sometimes different cell fates, such as terminal differentiation apoptosis. Okay. So another protein that you find in the membrane, besides these enzymes, like phospholipase D, is epidermal growth factor. So epidermal growth factor stimulation is it will result in an increased activity of phospholipase D. Remember, that's going to be making phosphatidic acid, right? And that occurs in the plasma membrane. And you get then the generation of that localized signaling molecule, which is PA. So the generation of phosphatidic acid can lead to the binding and recruitment of multiple effector proteins. One in particular that's been studied in carcinogenesis is the SOS protein, also known as the son of sevenless protein, first described in Drosophila. Yeah. Now that will, that, that effector protein SOS, will directly lead to RAS activation. Now RAF1 can be directly activated by phosphatidic acid, which of course is directly generated by phospholipase D. So that's going to result in a two-component downstream mitogen-activated protein kinase signaling pathway. Furthermore, phosphatidic acid can bind and activate the mTOR. That's the mammalian target of rabomycin. And of course, you know that's a protein kinase, and that plays a role in protein synthesis, that is translation. Finally, there's a sphingosine kinase which we've talked about because that makes sphingosine 1-phosphate, recall. And that's important in cell growth, calcium homeostasis, cell and membrane lipid raft mobility. That sphingosine kinase is regulated by phospholipase D and a phosphatidic acid-dependent recruitment of that enzyme to the intracellular membrane. So remember, you have phospholipases A1, which remove fatty acid from the 1 position. Phospholipase A2, which remove fatty acid from the 2 position of a preformed glycerol lipid. Uh, phospholipase C, which will remove uh, the, uh, the whatever is attached on the proximal side of the phosphate. And that will generate diacylglycerol. And phospholipase D is on the distal side of the phosphate, and that will generate phosphatidic acid. So you have four different phospholipases to consider, all possibly functioning because of exposure to one lipid moiety in the membrane. Now I want you to consider 
growth factors, growth factors like the WNT signaling pathway. WNT signaling is involved in induction of phospholipase D expression and the role of uh, phosphatidic acid linked to wind signaling in cancer. So you get a growth factor or a mitogen-induced phospholipase D activation. And as we just mentioned, that will induce RAS, RAF, and then what's the next enzyme we normally talk about? The ERK, and then finally the NF-kappa B signaling pathway. That's directly involved in activation of gene expression in lymphocytes, such as T cells. You also have the RAS phosphoinositide 3 kinase, that's PI3 kinase, AKT NF kappa B signaling pathway. That will enhance NF kappa B binding to the phospholipase D1 promoter region, which is also controlled epigenetically in T cells. Now you have an active oncogenic RAS that will induce directly the expression of phospholipase D1. It does so by binding SP1 to the upstream phospholipase D promoter. So you get increased PLD1 expression. Subsequently, you're going to get, of course, an increase in phosphatidic acid. And that actually promotes directly the invasion, metastatic invasion, of cancer cells. Now, there's EWIG's sarcoma fusion protein. That's known as the EWS or FLI. Now, that sarcoma fusion protein will selectively induce phospholipase D2 expression through the binding to the PLD2 promoter of that protein, of the sarcoma fusion protein. Now, in the absence of WINT signaling, WNT signaling, cytoplasmic protein known as beta-catenin becomes phosphorylated. <clears throat> and when it's phosphorylated, it's degraded. But when WINT binds to one of its receptors, such as the frizzle receptor, you'll get the formation of what's known as a destruction complex. And that's inhibited with accumulated beta-catenin, thus being translocated into nucleus. When that occurs, beta-catenin forms a complex with a TCF, that's going to be a transcription factor. In that instance, PLD1 and PLD2 genes are transcription activated because you get a binding of the beta-catenin TCF to the enhancer region for the expression of those two transcripts. Also remember that phospholipase degenerate phosphatidic acid suppresses the expression of another protein called ICAT. ICAT will inhibit the interaction of beta-catenin with TCF followed by a promotion now of the Wnt beta-catenin TCF signaling, which would then go on to regulate transcription of target genes, stimulating tumorigenic cell growth. So see, 
All of this is happening in the membrane. Now go back to my discussion of the phospholipase, for example, phospholipase D. Think about its activation. Think about its, remember that, that sphere of influence, right? That phase space that the phospholipase can exist within because of entropic forces, which will allow for that enzyme to readily move, remember, and that movement from within that sphere known as X from uh, going on a straight line, for example, just from Y1 to Y2, could enhance the activation of a great deal of these downstream mediated responses, which normally go essentially occult because what the researcher is looking for is the signaling pathway. And, and the researcher doesn't have the tools or he hasn't set up experiment to use tools to generate an understanding of the changes in entropy for that system that mediate the phospholipase activity. Okay, that's why I got you into that point. So you can get deprotonation of phosphatic acid, which is of course a signaling effector molecule, and that deprotonation will in fact enhance the signaling effect of PA. That's because you get hydrogen bonding increasing the charge of phosphatidic acid and lysophosphatic acid. After that, fatty acids move to the two position of glycerol backbone. So the phosphonomonoester head group of LPA will form an intramolecular hydrogen bond. So in the protonated phosphonomonoester of LPA, a proton will be shared between two hydroxyl oxygens, such that hydrogen bonding between the SN2 hydroxyl and the phosphonomonoester of LPA will compete with the shared proton for the oxygen electrons. What do you think that's going to do? Well, it will facilitate the dissociation of the proton, therefore effectively lowering the pKa. Now, hydrogen bonding between the phosphomonoester of phosphatic acid and the primary amine of the head group of phosphatidylethanolamine or a lysine or arginine basic protein residue on protein on proteins associated with that phospholipid will also result in the deprotonation of the phosphonomonoester, thus effectively again lowering the pKa, and of course that means uh, increasing the negative charge at a given pH. So this is how effector molecules. Lipids are proteins here is all we're talking about, are directly affected by subtle changes in pH and by the rotational mobility of phospholipids in the membrane. So when you think about enzymatic activity, I'm guessing you don't often think how phospholipid molecular dynamics relative to entropic changes will have an effect on enzymatic activity because of alterations in pKa, but indeed that is what occurs endomembranously. Okay.
So what is what would that suggest to you? What we already know, what we've been observing in cells for a very long time. And what is that? Cellular pH is under very tight metabolic control such that it will modulate precisely the ionization of lipid molecular species such that the level of proteination in situ in that membrane is one of the major determinants of biological activity, all because of change, so changes in pH. Now, what that does essentially, another way of looking at it, which goes back to what I mentioned a few moments ago, it establishes the lipid phosphonomonoester core to appropriate as a biosensing of biological and therefore cellular pH changes. So you get an electrostatic hydrogen bond switch mechanism. And that indeed in some systems, such as the endomembranous system in a T cell, that will explain some of the ability of the phosphonomonoester to form a hydrogen bond with adjacent lipids and proteins, such as those basic, pro basic amino acids like the lysine and arginine. And then therefore that is demonstrating the source of the pH sensing phenomena. And at the same time, it explains the mechanism for pH dependent effector binding. Now you get to understand more why these thermodynamic states associated with enthalpy and entropy are so significant for biochemical phenomena in living systems. Now, I want to remind you that proteins constantly surveil surfaces of membranes. And what they're surveilling because of titration is the charge state of certain phospholipids. And one of the major phospholipids is PA. So proteins surveil the charge state of PA as well as its loosening effect on the hydrophobic properties of that membrane surface, obviously. And what does that provide? It provides a mechanism for phosphatidic acid over other anionic lipids to function directly on enzymatic activity because of thermodynamic forces within the biological membrane. So, of course, it's possible that other membrane lipid phosphomonoesters are carrying out similar phenomena. For example, the phosphatylinositol phosphates, ceramide 1-phosphate, remember that's a sphingolipid, and of course, diisoglycerol pyrophosphate. And indeed, all of those lipids I just mentioned to you have been observed to operate as pH biosensors. So it's likely, if you think you have biochemical evolution, don't only rest your attention on genetic modification because it seems that selection pressure directing biochemical evolution has enabled phospholipids to have an electrostatic hydrogen bond switching mechanism 
which is equally important as the enzymes, and signal transduction cascades. Okay. So let me take a look at my time here. Yeah, I think I'm going to stop there. So I'm going to label this immunoepigenetics. I think it's lecture 80 because you're going to find out just the next lecture that all this is going to be put together in T lymphocytes. I'm going to be able to talk about phosphatic acid as a harbinger of epigenetic alterations in those T lymphocytes. And then we're going to get right back into immunoepigenetics and run another 20 lectures and we'll finish this cycle, more or less. This is Dr. Dan Guerra on a Thursday afternoon, which is the 15th of June, 2023, saying bye for now.